0: Well, good morning, Sovereign Grace. Happy Easter. It's good to see all of you here this morning. He is risen. He is. Amen. If you haven't met me yet, my name is Jason Faber, and it's my great privilege to serve as one of the pastors here. Having said that, I'd like to turn your attention now to the word of the Lord as we find it in the 18th chapter of the book of Genesis. We're going to finish that chapter this morning, Genesis 18, picking up where we left off last week. In verse sixteen through verse thirty-three. And so I'm going to read that section for us, Genesis eighteen, sixteen through thirty-three. But before I do, I remind you, as always, brothers and sisters, that what we're about to hear read is the word of the living God. And so may we tremble before his word, may we repent before his word, may we rejoice before his word, and come with every expectation that he, by his grace, will speak to us. And that as the word is preached, we will hear indeed the voice of Jesus in the scriptures. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death, "...with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes." Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again he spoke to him and said, suppose forty are found there. He answered, for the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose thirty are found there. He answered, I will not do it. And Abraham returned to his place. Saints of God, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. So let's ask him to bless it to us this morning. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, as we open now your word, we pray that the eyes of our hearts may be enlightened so that we may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled up to all the fullness of God. We ask this in the name of the one who is immortal, invisible, God only wise, the one who was and is and is to come, even the blessed Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, it's Easter Sunday. It's that time of year that we set aside to remember in the church calendar that Christ rose from the dead, conquering sin and death. And I wonder if over the last week, this Holy Week, if you will, if you spent much time reflecting on what necessitates everything that Jesus does in his earthly ministry, why is it necessary that Jesus come and fulfill all righteousness, die an atoning death on the cross, raised from the dead, having been buried, and then ascending to the Father's right hand? What necessitates that? And what necessitates that, if you don't know, is the fact that God is the just judge of all the earth. Jesus comes because as fallen humanity in Adam and through our own sinful rebellion, our cosmic treason against God, it is necessary because he is just that our sin be punished. That the righteous requirements of his law, that we be justly judged by him, be fulfilled. And so, as we think about Easter Sunday, and as we reflect on what we've reflected over the last week, you may not have noticed it, but there's a bass note that's constantly sounding out. And that bass note is the justice of God that we deserve for our sins. And here's the thing, we can find no deliverance from that through any works of our own hands. It's an infinite debt that we owe to God, and we are finite, and so we cannot repay it. And so unless the Lord do something on our behalf, we are lost. We are eternally damned. But God, but God has shown us mercy in his Son. And all the just requirements of his law have been fulfilled. And so again, I want to draw our attention because our text does this morning to that base note that God is the just judge of all the earth. And everything that Christ does, he does to fulfill and to satisfy that justice. That's why the Father sends him. And that's going to be at the forefront of our text this morning. And what we're going to see is the justice of God playing out God's righteousness being manifest on the earth. We'll see that even more clearly next week as we see that judgment rain from the heavens down onto earth. But what we're going to see first this week in the second half of chapter 18 is there's a courtroom proceeding that takes place. There's some courtroom drama here in which God is the just judge of the people of Sodom. Sodom is on trial for their sin And who steps in and intercedes Abraham? And so what we're going to do this morning is our outline is looking at the three main characters in this courtroom drama. First of all, in verses 16 through 19, we're going to look at the righteous man. We're going to look at the righteous man, Abraham, and we're going to look at why he's righteous. It's because of God's work in his life and the unique role that he has to intercede for Sodom. Second of all, we'll look at the unrighteous city in verses 20 and 21. The unrighteous city is Sodom, and their sins, their injustices are crying out to the Lord for His wrath to rain down on them. And we'll see that those cries have gone up to who? Well, that's the third character, the just and merciful God of all the earth, the Lord Himself And we'll look at that in verses 22 through 33, the rest of this chapter. And what we're going to see, brothers and sisters, is that we have much reason to rejoice. Because what's reflected here in this courtroom drama in Genesis 18 has echoes and reflections of the glories of the gospel. The gospel realities that are ours in Christ and were Abraham's on the basis of the Christ who was yet to come. And so may we rejoice as we look in these realities and behold the glories so clearly of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So let's look first then at the righteous man in verses 16 through 19, focusing first on verse 16, picking up the story where we left off last week. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down Toward Sodom, and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. So the story picks up where we left off last week. You recall, if you were here with us, in chapter eighteen the Lord, the first half, appears to Abraham. And the way he appears is in these three human forms that draw near. And we see that the reason the Lord is drawing near is to encourage the faith of Abraham and Sarah, specifically, more particularly, Sarah. And the Lord is drawing near and sharing this covenant meal with them, saying, we have peace. All of my promises are going to be fulfilled to you because we are in a gracious covenant relationship with one another. And then we also see that the Lord draws near to actually encourage Sarah with the gospel realities and then also rebuke her and expose her sin. And we see that the Lord sanctifies her through that. And now, after having shown this extravagant hospitality that we saw last week, that Abraham shows to his guests, they're about to continue on their journey. You remember, Abraham says, I'm not going to keep you long. Just let me give you this meal and then you can be on your way. Well, now they're headed on their way. And Abraham's hospitality continues. You notice that he walks with them on their journey a bit of a ways. I'm really old school, so I still do this at my house when we have visitors. If they're over for a meal or even our grace group, I find myself walking people out towards their cars as if a final way to say, thanks for coming. We really enjoyed your time. We can't wait till you come back. That's very much what Abraham is doing here as well. And we're getting a little clue from the narrator what's going to be happening here. Because as they're heading in this particular direction, the narrator tells us that they look down on Sodom. That's where they're heading. That's the direction. But before they leave, the Lord wants to discuss something with Abraham. So look at verse 17. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? I love this. Don't you do this with people in your life? Hey, you know, I really shouldn't probably tell you this. But then you confide in them. You're drawing them out in conversation. Hey, can I share my thoughts with you? And you know, you don't typically do this with strangers, do you? You don't entrust yourself, your private thoughts to just anybody. You entrust your private thoughts to a friend. And that's what we're seeing here. We're seeing that Abraham is a friend of God. And why is he a friend of God? He's a friend with God because of the gracious covenant relationship that God has with him, that God has entered into with him. So there's not just peace in that we're not enemies anymore, but it's even more than that. It's that we're friends. And so in a very real sense, though the Lord does not need the counsel of Abraham, he is inviting Abraham into his counsel. And saying, I'm going to reveal to you, Abraham, what I'm about to do. I'm going to reveal to you my will. Now you may say, how do you know that this is showing us that Abraham is a friend of God? There's multiple places I could take you in the Bible to show that Abraham's a friend of God. But listen just for example to James 2.23. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Notice the progression. And he was called a friend of God brothers and sisters as a little bit of a sidebar do you understand that we know this privilege as well do you understand we know the privilege of being friends of God if you have any doubts about that listen to what Jesus says in John 15 verses 14 and 15 he says you are my friends if you do what i command No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from the Father I have made known to you. And so what we see is, yes, the Lord does not appear in human form nowadays to us and draw near in that sense. But how does he draw near to us? He draws near to us in his word. And he speaks his truth, his promises over us. And the Spirit uses those effectually to draw us into deeper fellowship and communion with him. Do we rejoice? Do we revel in that reality? If you have a friend like that, if God's for you, who can be against you? And so we get to rejoice in this reality as well. Next, though, we see in the text that the Lord reminds Abraham of the basis of their friendship, which is what? His covenant. It's being restated again to Abraham. So let's look there at it in verses 18 and 19. The Lord continues to speak and he says, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised. So what is the Lord restating here? He's restating his gracious covenant and the promises and the obligations to Abraham yet again. The promises that we first heard back in Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. I'm going to make you a great nation. As many as the stars in the sky or the sand on the seashore. And you're going to be a blessing to the nations. And I'm going to do this through a son. And you're going to teach your children to obey all that I've commanded you. And in doing so, then I will, as you walk in obedience to me, I will keep my promises, I will fulfill my promises. And so what we're seeing is just grace upon grace upon grace. Because who's the one that initiated all of this? Notice that the Lord says, For I have chosen you. In the Hebrew, the language is so much more rich. It's, I have known you. I know you. And what is being communicated here is the reality of election. That the Lord has chosen his people, given his people to his son, In eternity past, before the foundations of the world, before they ever did anything. So we're talking about the reality of election. The Lord graciously saving us. The Lord is saying, Abraham, I've done that for you. I've elected you. And then in time and space in history, the Lord says, when you were a pagan worshiping pagan gods, I sought you. And I called you to myself. I've saved you. And I've made you these promises. I've given you the gospel. And I've given you these promises. I've given you these obligations. You're to obey. You're to teach your kids about these realities. You're to pass on the covenant sign of circumcision and let them know that I haven't just set you aside, Abraham. I've set them aside. I've covenanted with you and your family. And so do you see how in the life of Abraham, it's just grace upon grace The election is grace. The calling is grace. The empowering to obey is grace. And then the Lord says, as you obey, I will fulfill my promises. (laughs) So as I graciously empower you to obey, I will then reward you for that obedience with even more grace. It's just grace upon grace that Abraham knows in his relationship with the Lord. And he says, this is why you're my friend. This is why I'm revealing this to you. And this is why you're going to intercede for the nations. And again, brothers and sisters, so much here for us to rejoice in. You understand, we are Abraham's children. It's what the scriptures say very, very clearly. And these realities are ours. You understand, before you did anything, the Lord chose you, set you apart, gave you to his son in love and said, this one belongs to me by name. And we know that very clearly from the scriptures. Ephesians 1, 3 through 5 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. You hadn't done anything. Just because of his love, he set you apart to the praise of his glorious grace. You have been chosen in Christ. That was true of Abraham. That's true of us. It's also true of us that God both declares us righteous... And makes us righteous. Isn't that what the Lord says of Abraham? I've set you apart. I've said that you're righteous. Declared you righteous. On the future merits of the coming Messiah. And then I've actually made you righteous. I've empowered your faith. I've been sanctifying you. Brothers and sisters, the same realities are true of us. First Corinthians 1.30 says, And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. And Christ Jesus has become to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. So on the one hand, we've been declared righteous, not based on our righteousness, but on a righteousness that's outside of us, Christ's righteousness. All that he accomplished in his life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, that is all counted as ours. And so the Lord says, here's the declaration, you're not guilty, you're forgiven, you're not sinful in Christ, you are righteous. But that's not all. Because we're in Christ, we're not only declared righteous, but then he makes us graciously righteous. He sanctifies us. By the word and by his spirit, through communion and fellowship with the triune God, we are radically transformed, says Paul, from one degree of glory to the next. And so these realities that we see in Abraham, we see in us as well. And then, of course, if we're going to call Abraham a righteous man, which we ought to because the scriptures do, of course, Abraham here is pointing us to the perfectly righteous man, isn't he? He's pointing us to his greater son, the one who's promised. All of these promises to Abraham ultimately find their fulfillment in Jesus. We know that from Galatians 3.16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. And so it's in Christ that the people of God are made a great and mighty nation. And it's through Christ that all the nations are then blessed. And it's through Christ that there will be many children that walk in accord with his law in obedience. And it's in Jesus that all of the promises are fulfilled. So do you see all of the gospel realities that are chalked here? And we're just getting started. That's just the first couple of verses. There's so much to revel in here. So let's keep going. We've looked first at Abraham, the righteous man, and we're going to see the important role that he plays in just a little bit. But now secondly, let's look at the second character here, the one who's on trial in this courtroom drama, the unrighteous city. Look at verses 20 and 21 with me. Don't blink because this point will go pretty quickly. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So now the Lord has revealed to Abraham hey, here's what's coming down the line. The sins of Sodom and Gomorrah have been like cries rising before a judge. And if the judge is to be just, which we know God is just, he must act. He must bring justice raining down. And so the Lord is saying, this is what I'm going to do. This is what I'm going to do, Abraham. And the first thing that we notice here is that Notice that the sins of the people of Sodom are going up like cries. Doesn't that make you think of another incident in Genesis that we've already looked at? Remember back in Genesis chapter 4 and verse 10 when Cain unjustly, unrighteously, murderously kills his brother? And do you remember what the Lord says? He says, Abel's blood is crying out to me, it's crying out for justice. And so the Lord is saying, these horrific sins that the people of Sodom are engaging in are calling out for me to draw near and do justice upon them. And of course, we're well familiar with some of the sins of Sodom, aren't we? There's that sexual perversion that is unnatural and abhorrent and harmful and against the law of God that still bears the name of this city today. And the Lord looked down on that and said, that's an abomination to me. And so their sin is crying out to me. But those aren't the only sins that they engaged in. We also know that they were given over to, I hate to use this term in some ways, but here it's actually appropriate, social injustice. They're given over to injustice. They're not caring for the poor and the needy. Listen to what Ezekiel says in Ezekiel 16, 49. Behold, this is the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and the needy. They were given over to pride. Isn't it easy to be prideful when you're wealthy? And by the way, everyone in this room by global standards is wealthy. It's very easy to be prideful. Look at all that my hands have done. And then you think, you know what? And those other people, I'm not going to look out for them. They don't deserve my help at all. And so then the Lord's saying, there are these injustices, and they're crying out to me. And so I'm going to draw near. Now, I want you to understand something. This language here, we can get ourselves in big trouble if we don't understand what the Lord is trying to communicate to us. All right, the Lord's not up in heaven with these big giant ears, and the sins of people are crying out with decibel sound waves going up. And then the Lord comes down, so normally he's spatially there, and now spatially he's here. No, no, no. And he doesn't know really if they're sinning or not, so he's got to come near and see if it's actually the case. No, no, no. Do you understand that the Lord is using baby talk? You know how you slip into that weird voice? Maybe some of you don't. Some of us do, and it's embarrassing when you hear yourself on like a video or so, Oh my goodness, that's, that's embarrassing. It's baby talk to your kids, right? When they're really small. Don't do that to them when they're 18. But the Lord does baby talk with us so that we can understand his relating to us. And so let's not get mixed up here. But what the Lord is communicating by drawing near is he's saying, listen, this judgment is just. This judgment is not based on Misinformation. I don't have misinformation, the Lord is. I know all things, but I'm drawing near. Remember, the Lord used this language back in Genesis chapter 11 when he drew near to see what was happening at the Tower of Babel. And what the Lord is communicating, I think, by the way, as example as well, secondarily, that we don't make judgments without having proof, without having evidence. And the Lord says, I have all of that. They are guilty. And I'm going to make that abundantly clear to you by drawing near through these two angels that are headed that way in the form of men. And then I will judge them. They will be wiped out even as I wiped out the world globally in the flood. So now I'm going to wipe out this city that is unrighteous. And so I want you to notice the contrast too. The contrast between the Lord drawing near to Abraham and Sarah to bless them with this covenant meal, and by rebuking them with his word, and encouraging them with these gospel promises. And now here we have the Lord drawing near, not to bless, not to build up. He's drawing near to do what? To judge, and to destroy. And so there's this contrast. And I can't help but go here very briefly. Doesn't this remind you, by the way, of what Jesus does in his earthly ministry? He's headed towards Jerusalem with his disciples in Luke 19 and in Matthew 23, and he sees Jerusalem, and what does he do? He weeps. He says, oh, that you would have repented. But now here I come in judgment. And then what does he do? He draws near to Jerusalem, and he sees the unrighteousness. He sees the ungodliness. And then what does he do? He pronounces judgment, and eventually Jerusalem is wiped out and destroyed, isn't it? And so, what are we to take away from this? What are we to learn? Well, first of all, behold the state of fallen man in Adam. This is the state of fallen man. We're going to see next week, as we look at the destruction that comes upon Sodom, that there was not found even one righteous from that city. You say, what about Lot? Lot's a foreigner, he belongs to the covenant people of God. It was not found one righteous in the city. And here's the thing. This judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah, it's paradigmatic. All throughout scripture, it's used again and again and again as an example of the final judgment that's coming. And so what the Lord is saying is, out of the mass of fallen humanity, Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And so I don't relish this next part that I need to carry out as a gospel minister, but I love the Lord and I love you enough to do it. If there's any unbelievers with us here this morning, which a crowd this side, I'm pretty confident there are. This is describing you. You are like Sodom and Gomorrah. I'm not saying that you are participating in the same sins that they are specifically. But what I'm saying is you're standing before God. Every sin that you commit. Every disordered affection in your soul. Every mistreatment of another image bearer of God. Goes up as a cry before him. Every violation of his law screams to him. Justice must be done. Justice must be done. And so the judgment of God looms over you. And you experience it. You know you do in this life. And those are but four tastes of what awaits you in hell forever. Lest you repent. And that's the second reality. Is that God will judge fallen man. He is not mocked. Yes, he tarries. Yes, he is patient. But what we see here is that his mercy, there's no ending to his mercy, but the display of his mercy, there are limits to it. And the way that he manifests it And so the judgment of God will come upon every sinner who does not repent. Ecclesiastes 12.14 says, For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. No injustice will go unpunished. No injustice escapes God's notice, even if you think it does. He will righteously repay all through the son that he has appointed to be the judge. Now, that's the bad news. If you're a believer here this morning, your soul ought to rejoice that this is what God has saved us from in Christ. You understand, don't sit there in superiority and pride thinking, yeah, go get them, Jason. We don't deserve that. In and of ourselves, that is exactly what we deserve. We deserve exactly what's going to happen to Sodom and Gomorrah and worse, what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah after they stood before the judgment seat of God. But God has shown us grace and mercy and saved us for Jesus' sake because he took that judgment in our place on the cross. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, for our sake, Because he chose us in him, he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So you see, when the Lord draws near as it were to you, he doesn't treat you as your sins deserve. Instead, what does he do? He draws near and he treats you as his only begotten son deserves to be treated. Who fulfilled all righteousness. In whom the father was pleased. Now that is true over you. It's incredible. Just incredible. Because he loves us. That's why he's done this. All right. so we've got the first two main characters. Got the righteous man, Abraham. The unrighteous city who's on trial, Sodom. Now finally, let's look at the main display who gets the bulk of the rest of the section here. The just and merciful God who is the judge of all the earth. Look at verse 22 with me. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. So what's happening here? The three men, this party that appeared to Abraham, and that he showed hospitality to, and now he's seeing them on their way. This group is splitting up. So the one that was a manifestation, a representation of the Lord, he stays, and now these other two are going to go down and investigate what's happening down at Sodom. We see that at the beginning of chapter 19. And if you'll allow me a little speculation, why does the one that represents the Lord stay back and the other two that are the angels go? A little speculation makes you wonder. The Lord is holy. He can't even look upon such unrighteousness and wickedness and be in the presence of it. And so the just and merciful judge stays back. The angel goes and notice this language that Abraham is standing before the Lord. Now, I guess there's some dispute about is the Lord standing before Abraham? Is Abraham standing before the Lord? I think it's Abraham standing before the Lord. Why? Because here you have... Abraham standing before the judge of all the earth. Don't we still do this today, by the way? You watch court dramas on TV or maybe you've been in court recently because you were there as a juror. That's what I'm insinuating. Not that you've... And what does the bailiff say? All arise. The honorable judge blank is now in session, right? And everybody stands up as a sign of respect, for the office, for the role that the judge plays. Here is Abraham standing before the Lord in reverence and in awe and respect. And the Lord's invited him. The Lord said, hey, I'm revealing this to you because I want you to engage me here, Abraham. And as Abraham stands, notice in verse 23 what he does. He does exactly this. He engages with the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? So, out of the gate, what's Abraham's plea here? He's interceding for the righteous. All right, well, Jason, I thought you said there were none righteous in the city of Sodom. Well, I kind of tipped my hat to this already. There's one righteous man there. Who is it? It's Lot and his family. Now you say, Wait a minute, Jason, I know my Bible. And I would not characterize Lot as righteous. I mean, we're going to see some horrific stuff in the next chapter. But it really doesn't matter what you think, and it doesn't really matter what I think. Because you know what? Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, listen to these words that Peter penned in 2 Peter 2.7. He calls him righteous Lot. If you haven't read much of your Bible, even those who are in covenant relation with the Lord do some pretty atrocious things. So the righteous Lot here, he's a part of the covenant. He's Abraham's nephew. And so he's saying, Lord, are you going to destroy? Abraham knows the sin of Sodom. Their reputation precedes them. He's not saying it's unjust of you to wipe out the wicked for their sin. He's saying, are you going to wipe out the righteous along with the wicked? Now from there, he goes on to intercede for Sodom itself. Look at verses 24 and 25. Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just." So you see now, he's still interceding for the righteous as well, but he's also interceding for these unbelievers. And again, I want to highlight this. Abraham knows who these folks are. We already know that, by the way, from earlier in the book of Genesis. You remember back in Genesis chapter 14, these wicked, unrighteous kings, they come and they start conquering these people groups. And one of the groups that they conquer is Lot, and they take Lot captive. And so Abraham and his men go and do battle with them and they deliver not just Lot but they also deliver one of the groups is the people of Sodom. And so Abraham probably knows some of these people by name. Recognize their faces. Could have a conversation with them personally. And so what are we seeing here? We're seeing the compassion. The love that Abraham has for his common man. You see... Someone who's a friend of God is also a friend of sinners. Now, don't misunderstand what I mean by that. I'm not saying that they do what sinners do or condone the sins that sinners participate in. That's not what I'm talking about at all. They have friendships with sinners. They know sinners. And they love them and care for them and pray that the Lord saves them. And so along those lines, I want you to see something fascinating here. You remember part of the promise, we've already talked about it to Abraham, is that he's going to be a blessing to the nations. And don't you see that that's exactly what's happening here? Abraham's believing God's promise. We're seeing fruit, we're seeing evidence. Springing forth from the root that is his faith that god has given him and he has exercised and he says lord I believe the promise that i'm going to be a blessing to the nations and I believe that you invited me into this conversation And so one of the ways I can be a blessing to the nations is i'm going to intercede for them It's beautiful It's glorious And he's not interceding for the israelites. They don't even exist yet. He's not interceding for his own people Like Moses will, or Amos, or Jeremiah. No, he's interceding, pleading for a wicked nation. And so here we have the intercession starting. The defendant doing his work. And what's his starting point? The starting point of his argument is God's character. He takes it for granted. Lord, you're the just judge of all the earth. I don't need to prove that to you. That is self-evident. You are just, otherwise you're not God. You're the judge of all the earth, otherwise you're not God. And so my starting point is your character. You are just. And so that which you do then will be righteous and just as well. And then we also see Abraham here grappling Not only with God's justice, which is really the touchstone, but also God's mercy, isn't he? So if there's 50 righteous, can you spare the whole city? I don't know, is that just? It's not just for him to wipe out the righteous along with the unrighteous. But is it just for him to mercifully let the guilty off the hook for the sake of 50 righteous? And so he's grappling with this. And so there's this back and forth, and Abraham starts to explore this by actually putting specific numbers on it. How about 50 righteous? How about that? Well, from there, we have this back and forth between God and Abraham. So let's look at that, starting in verse 26 through the end of the chapter. And the Lord said, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I've undertaken to speak to the Lord. I who am but dust and ashes, suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. He answered, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose there are 30 found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again this once. Suppose 10 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham. And Abraham returned to his place. So from 50 to 45 to 40 to 30 to 20 to 10. What do we see here? We see both the Lord's mercy and that he allows the number to continually be lowered. And we see Abraham's compassion for the city. He doesn't want to see them destroyed. So he keeps lowering the number. And don't think here that Abraham has forgotten who he is. You think, man, this is really bold of Abraham. It is really bold of Abraham. But did you notice his humility as well? I'm sitting here going back and forth with the infinite, holy, righteous, perfect God. I who am but dust and ashes, a finite, fallen, sinful man. It's almost like he catches himself like, this is incredible that I'm doing this. So there's humility because of who he is in and of himself. But then there's also confidence to intercede because he's realizing God has called him to be a blessing to the nations. And so this is one of the ways that he can do that. And so we see Abraham interceding because he's believing God's promise. And he's interceding based on that And based on God's character. It's sort of an unsatisfactory resolution though, isn't it? Just sort of stops at 10. Then the Lord leaves. And Abraham leaves. And it's like, well, so what's that all about? Well, I think we're seeing some incredible realities here. First of all, it's pointing us forward to the reality that while Abraham gave it his best shot at interceding for the nations... Don't we see Jesus also interceding for the nations? Interceding for unbelievers? We read already this morning, Russell did when he was up here. We read from Isaiah 53 verse 12. The prophecy, the promise that the suffering servant, who is Jesus, to come would make intercession for the transgressors. And we read about this being fulfilled In part, in Luke 23, verse 34, where Jesus is being crucified. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And so what happens in Abraham's intercession? Sodom gets wiped out. Not even one among their number is found righteous. But Jesus, the one righteous man, intercedes for the nations. And he does so successfully. He did so for you, and he did so for me. We also see in Jesus how, if you will, this language falls short, but both God's justice and God's mercy, and how we're to think about that. The one doesn't cancel out the other, if you will. Again, language fails us, but we see God's justice in that God doesn't excuse sin, does he? He doesn't say, you know what, it's not that big of a deal. I can get over it, As long as you do more good things than bad things, as long as you hold up justice more than you uphold injustice, I think we'll be fine. No, Jesus comes. And why does the Son of God in the flesh have to suffer, if you will, on the cross as he does, experiencing the wrath of God for all the elect? It's because justice requires that. God doesn't sweep sin under the rug. He drinks the cup of God's wrath Down to the dregs. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Christ the righteous for us, the unrighteous. So we see God's justice, but we also see God's mercy in Jesus. Because God provides a substitute. Justice would demand just pure justice that you pay that penalty. You're the one who incurred it. But in his mercy, God says, I will provide a substitute who will fulfill all righteousness, pay the penalty for your sins, so that you are forgiven for the sake of another. Ephesians 1 verse 7 says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. And so I want to, in a final exhortation, take one more opportunity, unbelievers, If you're here this morning, repent. Turn to Christ. Your sins go up as cries before him. And again, he's not mocked. What you sow, you will reap. You may think no one notices the sin that you do, that no one can catch you, or that it's not that big of a deal. It is. And you will pay for the smallest infraction of God's law. So fly to Christ. He's your only hope. Otherwise, know that what awaits you, and I will not have your blood on my hands, I will tell you very clearly, the wrath of God will find you out. And you will pay the full penalty for your sins forever. But I don't want that for you, so I plead with you, turn to Christ. And for believers, there's too many riches here for us to even recount And do any justice to. We've been chosen by God in Christ. We've been declared righteous in Christ. We have been sanctified in Christ. We are being sanctified in Christ. He intercedes for us even now in prayer. In ways that we don't even know we need to be prayed for. What a sufficient risen savior we have. And the just judge of all the earth is our father. And our savior has been the one that the judgment of all mankind has been entrusted to. It is him that we will stand before. Don't you see how God is both just and the justifier of the ungodly? What incredibly good news. And so in light of that, brothers and sisters, ought we not to be like Abraham and intercede for unbelievers? Pray for the nations. That the Lord would raise up people willing to sacrifice and go and take the gospel to them. Those who have never heard it in the history of the world. Because you see, we're Abraham's offspring. You understand, that's why the church has been left here. Is to make the gospel known. So we ought to be like Abraham. (laughs) And pray for the unbelievers around us, our family members that you 're likely going to hang out with today, or at least talk to your coworkers. You see, Abraham realized what a privilege this was. Do we understand what a privilege it is for us? If so, let us be on our faces praying and ask the Lord to make us a people who pray. Not only that people would be saved, but that we would have opportunities to open our mouth and declare the good news to them. That we might see many saved on account of the one righteous man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Though we are all unrighteous, that they might be reconciled to the judge of all the earth, their creator. And worship and praise him forevermore. Let me pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we're humbled By the incredible grace that you've shown us. You've set us apart in your son. And then you sent him to accomplish our redemption. Fulfilling the just requirements of the law. Mercifully taking our place. Interceding for us even now. Father may we understand. In and of ourselves that we deserve to be destroyed. And yet you show us grace upon grace upon grace. May we rejoice in that this Easter Sunday, and every Sunday, may we reflect on these incredible realities and be built up and empowered and strengthened by you to faithfully carry out the task of continuing to do that all that Jesus began to do and teach, to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. We ask this in his name and for his sake. Amen.